Kia no mai, hi to mai, I'm Dan, welcome to the Short Vineyard Podcast, great to have you listening today. The message you're about to hear is from our current series called Eight Journeys, God Encounters That Could Change Us Forever. We want to explore this idea of being moved in 2019 from wherever we are now to wherever God is calling us to, taking whatever next step there is in our faith journey. So hopefully that's what this message encourages you to do. And stick around because at the end, I'll let you know how you could take a next step to be a further part of our church community. Right now, enjoy the message. Today, we're, we're, we're finishing our Eight Journeys series. Um, this evening, if you're interested, at 5 p.m., Fran's going to be talking uh, on the story of David. And this morning, we are going to look at 14. So everyone grab your Bibles and turn to 14, chapter 1. <laughs> Maybe some people don't know their Bibles that well, because only about half the room laughed. Oh, everyone's like thumbing through. Oh my goodness, where is this? Ah. There's no book called 14 in the Bible. There's also not a person called 14 in the Bible. Okay, so we're left with this question right on the very front end. If I can point, and this isn't gonna work, so you're just gonna have to track, oh, get out of that system so that I can control it. There you go. Who is 14? All right. Well, 14 uh, is the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. So now you can go to your Bibles and you can turn to John chapter 4. And we're going to be working with that a little bit this morning. But I want to tell you, I want to give you a little bit of a background because she doesn't just have this sort of name for no reason. Um, 14 is a a, a venerated saint uh, in the Eastern uh, Orthodox and Catholic traditions. Um, The name 14 means luminous one. And uh, she has the title uh, Aquilus Apostolus, which means equal to the apostles. Now, that's a really significant title to be given to someone. Okay, just to put it in a bit of context, only 20 people have ever been named in the sort of Eastern and uh, Orthodox and Catholic traditions have been named equal to the apostles. It's pretty significant. We're talking about a pretty significant person in, in church history and in church tradition. Um, as tradition goes, in the wake of this encounter with Jesus at the well, she would dedicate her life to the sharing of the good news. She went everywhere she traveled. Uh, as the story goes, as it's sort of been passed down through the, the Eastern traditions, um, she went traveling town to town with her family, preaching the good news. And as it turned out, eventually Emperor Nero caught wind of what she was up to. She, w- she and her family were brought before Nero. They were tried for their faith. Um, they, the, or her whole family suffered quite brutally. Um, her children all died very brutal deaths and she was, she was thrown down a well, not once but twice, and she eventually died a martyr's death um, at the bottom of a well, which um, I can't help but feel is like a little bit twisted, um, if not uh, a bit poetic, um, given the story. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very crazy story this, of, of, of this lady called Fotine. And it just seems like an important story for us to dive into. So how it's going to work this morning is sort of chunk by chunk. We're going to work through um, a bunch... Uh, a bunch of John 4, starting in chapter 1. So it'd be really good if you, if you can track with me, uh, if, you've got, if you've got notes or whatever as well, feel free to just uh, jot them along and, uh, and we'll go from there. But first, um, let me just pray real quick. Father, we want to thank you for the texts uh, that, that point towards you and point towards your story and how your story enters ours and changes our lives. And as we enter the story of 14 this morning, Lord, would you stir something in our hearts? Would we discover something more of your story in our lives? We pray. Amen. 
Now, when Jesus learned, oh, I'm reading the ESV, just so some of your words will be different. Just give that a bit of context. ESV, you might have NIV. We'll roughly track together. Um, now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. I love the way the Bible sort of like, hey, just, you know, does these little things in parentheses. Um, <clears throat> Uh, Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Okay, already in the story, let's take a brief moment of pause and pick up on a few things, because it's, it's kind of significant. Um, the, first thing to, the first thing to notice, and this is a bit of a, our strike one for the day, this, the first sort of alarm bells that should sort of pop up for us as we read this story, Jesus has to go through Samaritan territory. Now, uh, who are the Samaritans, if you're not familiar? Samaritans were sort of viewed by the Jewish people as sort of being mongrel Jews. Uh, after the exilic period, they sort of went their separate ways a little bit. Uh, all the Samaritans married non-Jewish people. Um, they started to get a little bit connected with some of the pagan religions a little bit. Um, they had a, a different interpretation of the, the Pentateuch, even though they sort of you know, very much believed in the same God. They interpreted some things a little bit differently, um, and it basically caused a bunch of animosity, and we'll hear a little bit more about that in the story. But essentially, Samaritans and Jews don't really associate with each other. That's not really a thing. And so what's interesting is in this very front bit of this story is where it says Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, most people who were making the trek in that time, they would actually travel to the east and they would circumvent Samaria to get to their location. They would go around it. It wasn't a region that you just passed through. Okay, so there's something we should already be picking up. Oh, this is interesting. Jesus had to go through Samaria. Maybe there's some sort of divine intervention that's planned, but we don't know. But all it says is Jesus had to pass through Samaria. So already we know there's something unusual. There's something different. There's something interesting happening with this story. Picking up, carrying on from verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. This is our... This is our 14, okay? Um, Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For, Jesus, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is where we see strike two of the story, the second thing that should sort of prick our ears up. Jesus is engaging with a woman, okay? Now there's a couple of interesting things even in and around that. So just so we know, like women hold a much different place in society in first century Israel. Um, uh, you, and almost definitely, if you were a rabbi, you wouldn't ask for water. 
Okay, To ask for something was to put yourself at a sort of subservient place. It was to actually elevate the other person above you. If a rabbi came to town, you offered them water. So already Jesus is doing something interesting and just flipping and twisting and working with the social dynamic a little bit. We should be aware of that. And he's engaging with a woman in a way that men, and particularly a rabbi, would never engage with a woman. So that's, uh, that's interesting for us to take note of. Um, there's also a couple other things that I find particularly interesting about this, this particular scene. Um, it seems to me that there's some sort of symmetry or parallel uh, to what we see in Genesis 29, when Jacob is at the well. And uh, it's, it's, it's symbolic of, a, of a, um, a Hebrew betrothal scene. And so there's some sort of connection between uh, the bridegroom and the bride beginning to take place, a little picture of the church that is slowly beginning to be built. It seems, seems somewhat intentional as this, as this scene is uh, sort of played out. Um, but what we also see here is, is that she's very suspect of Jesus. She's a bit unsure of, of what's actually going on, and she even questions him a little bit. Are you, are you like Jacob? So she's very unsure about what the scene is. And so there's a, there's a caution, an uncertainty as to what's about to play out here. So it's, um, it's, it's really interesting. Um, the other thing that we're talking about here that we see sort of pop up in this chunk of scripture is this, is this water of life discourse. And so Jesus, um, Jesus brings up this whole thing of the living water. And what will be interesting in the coming chapters in John, which we won't get to, and it's another thing, but in John chapter 6, we see this whole thing of the bread of life play out. But there's this whole thing going on in these few chapters that basically point towards the sustenance and the provision that comes through God. So this whole thing, like, it's almost like John the writer is, is, is building us up through these, through these particular stories. So it's really important for us to just be able to pick up on those things a little bit. There's something significant for us in this idea of the living water and that Jesus is the one who is able to offer it. We'll come back to that. Uh, Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Strike number three, the third thing that we should just kind of be aware of a little bit when we read this story. Sorry, I was hoping you'd be tracking with me. There you go. Fotine is an outcast. And I want to unpack this a little bit because I think what, what happens is when we read this story, particularly with our Western lens, it's very easy to, easy to sort of stamp this woman with the label of adulteress. Okay, we look at the story mostly as adultery, but there's actually a number of, uh, a number of different things that can contribute to her needing to have five, hun- uh, five husbands. Um, it's more likely that she is a victim of circumstance. Okay, so uh, typically what would happen, uh, as I mentioned before, like women occupied a very different place in society. In fact, they were more like property. Um, and so it's more likely that she uh, was a victim of divorce uh, or also very likely that she was a victim of death, that her, that her first husband had died. And what would typically happen with someone who had been divorced or their husband had died is they would get picked up by sort of someone else because they would rely on the men or the, the local families to, to sort of take them into their homes and look after them. And so for whatever reasons, it sounds like there's some sort of horrific sort of life that this woman's lived, but for whatever reason, she's now in her fifth household. She's now... 
uh, sort of under the roof of a fifth man in her life. And so it's more likely that she's some sort of like, you know, concubine or servant or just, just another wife that's being added into the mix. And so what we have with this story and this, and this woman's circumstance is probably something that's, that's more tragedy than adultery. Okay, so that's just... That's just a, framing that up a little bit so we can understand that. So, so it's a real, it's a real um, it's a, it just seems like a real rough situation that this, that, that this woman is in. In other words, she's, she's kind of at the end of herself uh, a little bit. And let's carry on, uh, verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is Spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is where we begin to see some of the, the conflict and the tension that exists between Samaritans and, and, and Jewish people come into play. Because uh, Jewish people would hold that Mount Zion or Jerusalem is, is the right place. It's the Temple Mountain. It's where, uh, it's where you should go to worship. And for the Samaritan people, um, it's this mountain over here where Jacob's well is, where their father is. Uh, Mount Gerizim is what it's called. Um, and actually, even still today, the, the sort of small remnant of, of Samaritan believers still, still live mostly in the proximity of Mount Gerizim. Um, but for them, it's like, this is the holy site. And this really is like the dispute. So you see the Samaritan woman kind of going, well, actually, like, in a way, she's kind of going like, well, what do you know? Like, you guys think that it's happened, it all happened on Mount Zion. But we know that this is where our fathers were, and this is where they came from, and this is where Jacob's well is. We know that the story is actually from here. So it's like, there's actually a little bit of a challenge coming into play here. It's like, you know, like, what do you know? And then, I mean, Jesus just like, he kind of flips the script a little bit, doesn't he? <laughs> so Jesus, what he begins to do is he basically tears down the walls. You know, the time is coming. He, first of all, he like puts her in her place, right? He says, you know, we worship what we know, and that's true. But then he begins to like tear this thing down. He says, you know, a time is coming where the uh, Father is looking for those who worship in spirit and truth. And what he does in this moment is he tears down the barriers to, to entry and he reveals that this is a story for all. That all of humankind get to step into this story. That the Samaritans are not excluded because they believe a different thing to the Jewish people, but that actually there is a story of redemption and reconciliation and restoration and relationship to God. That is the thing that we get to move towards. That is what she is invited to move towards. Jesus tears down the barriers to entry. Suddenly, it becomes a lot more accessible. Huh, I know we're flying through this, but we'll just keep pushing on. Just then, uh, this is in verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. And then just skipping ahead uh, to verse 39. 
Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So she has this, she has this encounter. She brings some sort of challenge. There's this, there's this caution. There's an uncertainty. And then there's this breakthrough moment where it's like, Oh, this is, this is the thing. Jesus kind of reads her mail, says what's up with her life, reveals some things to her, and it's like, oh my goodness, there's something significant happening in this moment. And she can't help but go back to the town, to everyone she knows, and says, you've got to come see this guy. And it says that many believed because of her story. And then as church tradition would have it, as I sort of said at the beginning, her storytelling didn't stop there. She would go town to town telling the story, and as church tradition would have it, she got to share the good news with many, many, many others and had a significant impact on the spread of the gospel through the Eastern world. Pretty incredible story. And when it comes to the idea of journey, I think that there, I think that there are a few, uh, a few things that we should, we should be well aware of uh, for ourselves. The first is this, is the idea that Jesus enters our story. You know, I've, I've, I've kind of noticed uh, through this series that a lot of the journeys and a lot of the movements we've looked at over the series have been sort of a uh, kind of physical of people. It's the journey that they go on. But I'm very aware that the journey here is actually Jesus towards the woman. It's Jesus moving towards us. Jesus looks to enter our story, our context, even if it's in like kind of shaky territory, right? Jesus had to pass through Samaria. It's like no matter the cost, no matter the risk, whatever, it's like Jesus looks to move towards us. That is something that we have to be aware of and not just aware of, on the lookout for. It's, like, it's like almost like seeing him in the distance and kind of going like, man, what's that, what's that shape? You know, I kind of think of like, you know, the, the disciples in the boat just seeing Jesus come towards them. And it like almost just seeing this, the movement of Jesus, it, it, it has to invoke a response. There's something powerful about it. And I love that when Jesus sort of meets with Fotin, meets with this woman at the well, that he speaks to her life, he speaks to her brokenness, and he offers a legitimate solution. He puts, he puts something on the table. And that's what Jesus does. As Jesus enters our story, he speaks to our lives. He, he, he sheds light on the areas that are struggling. He reveals our brokenness. And then he offers this legitimate solution, a legitimate piece of hope or grace or love or mercy or peace. It's like whatever, whatever, that, whatever that facet of our brokenness requires, it's like Jesus is there and he speaks to it and he says, and here's the living water. And sometimes I think we're a bit caught off by, that, by the approach of Jesus. Just like the woman at the well, oh, like, who are you? You seem to maybe like you're a prophet, but I don't know if, like, I don't know if you know what you're talking about. You know? But man, it's like if we would allow Jesus to enter our story like, what could he do in that moment? What would he speak to? It's important to know that Jesus is looking to enter our story. 
My second sort of takeaway from this is actually a question. And it's what water are you drinking? How is your relationship with God? What do the rhythms of your life look like? And I want to ask, like, what, what practices do you think that you are being invited to in a season like this, in the season that you're in right now? What are you being invited in? Because I think our relationship with God, like all relationships, actually requires an intentional attention to detail on our behalf. That's what relationship with God requires. Man, I was at a, I was at a, um, a barbecue like a few weeks ago and I, I ran into a friend of mine, a, a really close friend of mine who uh, years ago played a significant role in even sort of seeing me come to church, um, seeing me get to know Jesus. Really, really dear friend, someone I love dearly. But I just like, he just hasn't really been a part of my life for the last, I don't know, eight years or something. And I, I, in fact, you know, every now and then I get to run into him and we sort of have this nice little catch up. And I was at this barbecue and it's like I, I met his son who's like 18 months old. And it was like, I'm not even sure I remember your wife being pregnant, you know, and it was just, and it was like this kind of awkward exchange where it's like, oh, and you kind of just, oh, so what are you doing? Oh, it's just work, I guess, you know, and things are good. I mean, obviously you had a kid. How's that? Cool. Well, yeah. And it's so strained and it's so, like, do you guys know those sorts of stories? When you run into someone who has such, a, such an important part of your narrative, someone who you love dearly, it's like, you know, like, I've heard stories, you know, this person was, the, was, was, one, of my, was one, of my, um, one of my groomsmen at my wedding, or was one of my bridesmaids, and I just haven't seen them in 20 years. And so there's all this history, there's all this, you know, deep relationship, and yet, and yet it's just not there anymore. Because time and distance and circumstance and a lack of attention to the relationship itself just sort of pulls those things away. And people wonder why God feels far. And they surround themselves with the noise and the busyness of life. And they get caught up with the things that are happening at home. They get caught up with the things that are happening at their job. And they just lose sight until God just becomes the person at the barbecue that you get to see once every 18 months and you have this awkward little exchange. It's not the living water. We get to drink deeper of the living water when we like invest in like deep, rich practice, when our relationship with God becomes a priority, something we long for. It's only this that can keep the relationship strong, can keep the relationship growing. And it has to be something we, we, we place a value on. And then the final, my final sort of takeaway from this is that your story matters. Your story matters. What stories are you sharing and telling about God? Now, let me preface this, all right? I'm not much of like a go evangelize on Queen Street type person, okay? It's not really my bread and butter. Don't really like it. Mostly it just annoys me, okay? So that's not what I'm saying. Hey, all of you guys, 10 converts by next Sunday, all right? Otherwise, no cake, right? Like, that's not, okay, that's not what I'm saying for the record, okay? Not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that 
Our stories with God should be doing something in us so significant that it can't help but overflow. This is, this is, this is what happens with Fotine. She has this encounter at the well. She has an encounter with the living water and she can't help but tell it. She can't help but share it. And so I've got to ask, what stories are you telling? And if there's a lack of stories, then maybe it's a case of jumping back to that previous point and going, where's the living water? What practices are in place? What things are going on in my life that draw me closer to God? You know? Because your story matters. And your story will have an impact on people. It will ground people. Your story will help you celebrate and even recognize the movement of God. So even just being able to talk about those things, even being able to point to them and go, oh yeah, this happened, it it grounds you in the story of God. Solidifies things, it strengthens that relationship. So your story matters. What stories are you telling? And maybe even there's some homework in that, you know? Over lunch today, share a story. And you might just be surprised to find that it does something not just in the life of another person, but in your own life as well. Fotine's story helps us to recognize the movement of Jesus towards us. Her story helps us to consider the water we are drinking, and her story helps us find ways of celebrating and sharing the meaningful encounters of God in our life. This is important for us. We need to try and identify what our moments at the, at the well look like. Because here's the thing, if a woman who was uh, a Samaritan, a woman in first century Israel, um, and, a, and a social outcast can go and have an impact on her town and all the neighboring towns and see it spread into other countries, first of all, don't tell me women can't preach the gospel. Can I get an amen? <laughs> amen, right? Okay. If it can happen to her, it can happen to us. So I want to invite you to stand because this morning we're going to finish with communion. And communion at its core, uh, the Eucharist is a way of giving thanks. It's a way of remembering the story and inviting God to step in once again. It's a way of inquiring of God and saying, okay, God, how do I, how do I sign up again? You know? Or, God, this is the story I want to, I want to carry in my heart. That's what we get to do when we, when we take communion together. So at our church, we always take communion at the, at, on the last Sunday of every month. Um, and if you want to make a movement towards Jesus, this is a really nice, beautiful way to do so. But what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to say this little prayer together that's up on the screen. And um, there's just going to be a little bit of music that, that plays behind us. And then just as you're ready... Come up to the front. We've got two tables at the front, and we also have a communion table just uh, in the back, my right, your left, um, over there. So move to whichever table you want. Break off a little bit of bread. Take a little communion cup. Go back to your seats, and you can either have a moment by yourself, or you can grab a few people around, around you, and we can close and pray, and you guys can close and pray together. And then, and then we'll eat together, and we'll have a wonderful afternoon. But let's... Let's step in to the story as we take communion this evening. So let us say this prayer. We desire to be transformed, Lord, to look and sound like the one we love in a world of deep longing. Draw near to us this moment 
and shed light on that which yearns for it and give new life to that which desperately needs it. Amen. Well, that is going to do it for this edition of the Shaw Vineyard Podcast. Real quick, before you go, if you haven't already, it would be a great idea to subscribe to the podcast, especially if somebody sent this to you, so that you don't miss when the next episode gets published. And if you are on Auckland's North Shore and in the Forest Hill or the Bays area, we'd love to host you in person at one of our services, either 10am or 5pm this coming Sunday. It would be our honour to host you as a guest this weekend. Whatever is in store for you for the rest of the day, the rest of this week, I hope it is a good one, and we'll see you next time here on the Shore Vineyard Podcast.